0: Vineyard in general and Cascade Vineyard specifically values prayer. We've seen it. We've seen it in the in our opening prayer and prayer in between the worship and this time now and at the end of the service we're going to have opportunity for you to receive prayer. So if you're a guest or if you are hurting, you have a need, um, and you may or may not be able to respond to the call because I'm going I'm to give you a challenge. I'm going to lay down a challenge today. But at the end of the service, there be, there's going to be opportunity for you to receive prayer. And that's part of the whole idea that everyone gets to play. That's a value in the vineyard. And I want to talk about something today that probably your pastor has, has not talked about. Because in all of the years that I pastored, I don't think I ever spoke on this topic or tried to press into this. And it'll become self-evident uh, or evident why. But I want, I want to, on, on your pastor's behalf, not just Glenn and Donna, but uh, Tucker and Zoe as well, I want to challenge us with something today. Um, I'm not sure why I would want to help Glenn Because he always makes fun of me. (laughs) He picks on me all the time. And um, right after 9-11, we're at an international airport in Nicaragua. And he yells out across the room to me, hey, Ahmed! Ahmed! So for 20 or so years, not quite 20, but I am Ahmed, and, uh, yeah, anyway, so I could, I, this would be the perfect opportunity for me to tell you some things about your pastor that you might not know, (laughs) but I'm not that kind of guy. So we're not going to do that, except I am going to tell you some things that, that may not be evident. I want to come back to that about your pastors, um, I don't know what the message was last week last week I just asked if Glenn had a uh, a theme and he said that he was going to open the new year with prayer and I said that's perfect for where I want to go so when you talk about prayer prayer is a huge topic it's uh, the simply the key ingredient to our communion with God it's a means by which we are changed, that God changes us, whether or not he answers our prayer. It's a vehicle that we bring our needs to God, and he meets those needs. It's a tool that is used to soften the hearts of men and women and open their eyes to the light of the glorious gospel. It's a weapon that's used in spiritual warfare to defeat the powers of darkness. And, um, you know, we say, well, which one? And the answer is yes, all of those. It's as simple as a conversation, and it's as complex as what we might call strategic-level spiritual warfare. Everything in between. When I was 10 years old, um, my mom and dad had divorced when I was 5. When I was 10, I had way more freedom than a 10-year-old should have. I'm, I'm amazed that I'm still alive from that. But uh, I was found in our front yard unconscious, not from an accident or a fall, uh, I'm not sure who found me. I'm not sure who called the ambulance. I was unconscious. <laughs> right? Okay, so um, but we lived in Carson, California. My dad worked at the L.A. Harbor in San Pedro or near the near the harbor, about 20 minutes away from our house. My pastor lived in the other direction at least thirty minutes. And, uh, this is all told to me after the fact, but my pastor beat my father to the hospital and he stayed there for three days praying until I regained consciousness. Now, I don't know, you know, I can't say that my dad's a praying man, but my pastor was a praying man. In fact, I don't, I don't think they make them like that anymore, uh, Someone that would stand and intercede, or sit and intercede, and I'm I'm pretty sure because I know him pretty well that he probably spoke in tongues for three days until I opened my eyes and came back to life. And uh, there's a there's a whole big story behind that. And then about eight eight and a half years later, I was on mission in India, and uh, we were at a pa- I was at a pastors and leaders conference in this town of Pune, which is just south of uh, Mumbai or Bombay. And uh, there's a lot of backstory to that, how an 18-year-old is on mission in India by himself, but that, that's another time. And I got deathly sick. I don't think I've ever been as sick in my life. I had some kind of a fever, and I was down for the count. Uh, all I remember, and it's, uh, I can still see it now, it was they put me in a dark room, and I was in this room for a couple of days burning up with a fever. And the only thing I remember, was, of course, the dark room burning up with fever. But there was this uh, Indian man that was there watching over me and praying for me. He didn't speak English. Um, he probably was a, more of a servant class. I could tell just by by his clothing. I I never talked to him because I was just I was dying and uh he didn't speak English, but he did pray. And obviously, uh, Jesus met me because I wouldn't be here, really. Um, then months later, now this is back, this is a long time ago, when we don't had, didn't have the instant communication we have. We had to correspond by letters. Because phone calls were extremely expensive. So I'm in India. My, my sister, who is actually like a surrogate mom, is 10 years older than I am. She actually raised me after, the, after my mom and dad got divorced. We were talking back and forth, and I told her about this, uh, this sickness. And she's a journal keeper par excellence. And so she said, when? When was that? When did that happen? And we compared notes, we compared dates and times, and I come to find out that she had been moved upon by the Spirit of God to intercede for me, for my health, for my, for my life. Um, 10,000 miles away, it's 10,000 miles, I don't know, it's a few miles from India to California. And so, frankly, I, I don't think I would be here sharing with you today if it weren't for the mystery of prayer. Prayer is mysterious, and um, if anybody tells you otherwise, you might doubt them. It's a mystery of partnership with the Spirit of God. It's the mystery of a pastor filled with compassion for one of his flock, willing to intercede, to stand in the gap. It's the mystery of a stranger who loved Jesus willing to stand in the gap for a brother in Christ that he doesn't even know. It's the mystery of a sister who loved like a mother and was obedient to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. It's a willingness to partner with the Holy Spirit on behalf of someone in crisis. Now, there's personal communion in prayer, but I'm going to talk a little bit about... um, intercession. It's a willingness to partner with the Holy Spirit on behalf of someone in crisis. But the crisis I want to talk about is a crisis that's not so obvious. And in fact, I think it's a crisis of quiet desperation, sometimes right in front of us, but we don't see it. And that is pastors under fire and in need of prayer. Now, I, some of the things I'm going to share today are not specifically about your pastors necessarily, but they might be generally. So I'd like to turn to Exodus chapter 17. I don't know if you got the power up. Oh, good. All right. Good. Exodus chapter 17. Here's a story I want to look at and then we'll come back to it and uh, unpack it a little bit. Exodus 17, verse 1, the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. So here's the wilderness wandering, right? They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Notice this this wasn't just a simple request. Hey, we need water. What shall we do? But there was accusation and quarreling with the leader. He goes, uh, why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Well, Moses didn't make them, bring them. It was the Lord. Then Moses cried out to the Lord. What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. Uh, if, you, if you read the wilderness wanderings, there were some times when the Lord was actually upset with the people of God, right? And Moses interceded on behalf of the people. Then there were some times that Moses was upset with the people of God, and God had to step in and, and cool his jets, Right? Can you imagine what would have happened if they were both upset with the people of God at the same time? That, that might not have been good. That was supposed to be funny. You could laugh. Try to laugh. The Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you in the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, water will come out of it, the people will drink. Moses did this in the sight of the elders, and he called the place Massa or Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us? Here's where I really want to kind of focus is this next portion. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of your our men and go out to fight the Amalekites tomorrow. I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron and her went up to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up the hands, his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone, put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army and the, with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. That's not often uh, a direct command that we see. The Lord commanded, make note of this. Make sure that Joshua hears about it because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under the sun. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is My Banner. This is one of those places where there is the seven compound names of God. Um, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Nisi. Here's the Lord is My Banner. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. So well over 20 years ago, John Maxwell gave a teaching and he called it the pastor's most valuable player. Uh, You can look it up on YouTube. It's about 40 minutes. A bunch of other pastors have taken it and made it their own. I've taken the title, but not necessarily all of the content. It it would be worth the 40 minutes if you had time. Um, He starts uh, the service with... Some quotes from a friend of his wrote a book. Stan Toler wrote a book. You might be a preacher if. You might be a preacher if you've ever received an anonymous U-Haul gift certificate. You might be a preacher if you've ever dreamed that you were preaching only to awaken and discover you were. You might be a preacher if you find yourself counting people at a sporting event. These are preacher jokes, right? You might be a preacher if you're leading the church into the 21st century but don't know what you're preaching on Sunday. You might be a preacher if you ever wanted to wish people Merry Christmas at Easter because that's the next time you're going to see them. (laughs) You might be a preacher if you've ever wanted to give the sound man a bit of feedback of his own. You might be a preacher if you've ever walked into the counter at Dairy Queen and ordered a church split. (laughs) Okay, I'll read one more because it kind of just it goes with what we're talking about. You might be a preacher if you've ever written a letter of resignation on Monday morning. Some of this is opinion. Some of this is studied opinion, but I believe that leadership is tougher than ever before. Arrogant, self-seeking, self-serving, people with little or no integrity grabbing the headlines, making it difficult, making leadership distrusted. Feeding into this anti-authoritarian atmosphere that pervades the world and the church. I'm not an authoritarian leader, but I'm telling you that this causes a dark shadow over the many faithful and sincere men and women who are called to lead the local church. On top of that, leading the local church, everyone in this room has at their fingertips availability of preachers and teachers and pastors that are way more articulate, they're way funnier, they're more winsome, they're more educated, they're more anointed, they're not more handsome, but they're all of these other things, and it becomes difficult. And pastors deal with consumerism that has crept into the church. Consumerism is something that the early church didn't have to deal with. There was only one place to gather. You didn't have the ability, if you didn't like one church, to go across town or across the street to another. And so I don't think anyone pastoring in these days is going to find it easy. Pastors need help. Now, I want to say this. I'm not trying to garner sympathy for your pastors, but I am trying to garner understanding that will lead to some action. Some years ago, my, my father-in-law actually pastored for 27 years, and then he went into 25 years of itinerant evangelism ministry. So he, he ministered for nearly 60 years. When he slowed down a little bit, he was with us in our church in Hermiston when we were pastoring there. And I remember having conversations with him about some of the things that I was uh, dealing with, difficult situations, and this was a number of years ago, and we we had this, he said, when he pastored in the 50s and 60s, he did not face the kind of challenges. And he said that it was more difficult to pastor in, in this era than he ever did in his pastorate. If you were to Google... Uh, challenges that pastors face or pastor struggles. The top three articles that would come up are written by a man named Tom Rainer. He's a prolific author and he talks about in one of one of the articles the fact that he has three adult sons all of whom are in Christian leadership two of them i believe are pastors and one is in leadership in another area and he said it's difficult for him to call up his own pastoral experience in helping them face the challenges that they currently face I could take a very long list of statistics of the kinds of challenges that pastors face and, and uh, some of their response to full-time ministry, but I, I don't have the time to do that. But here are, here are five common things that pastors admit to facing. Loneliness, stress, feelings of inadequacy, depression, and spiritual warfare. Those five come up often. I can tell you, over the years, I have dealt with all of those. I don't know about your pastors, but I guarantee that they deal with the last one. And I want to come back to that. I want to come back to that in just a moment. There's another issue with pastoring that um, I'm not sure people understand if they're not attentive. And that is this care, a sense of care and concern for the flock. Now, my experience, I I know this may not be your experience, but my experience has been that uh, pastors, there's not a person in the church that carries the weight of concern for the church, for the activities and the people, as much as the pastor. Uh, You know, that might be in other situations. I've been part of the vineyard and vineyard-like churches And it's a weight. It doesn't necessarily have to be a burden. But here's how it goes goes about. If you want to read a little bit about it, read Second Corinthians chapter eleven. That's the chapter where Paul says, "Hey, if um, you know, he's kind of." ...having to put his credentials out there, and he talks about the difficulties that he went through. He was shipwrecked. He was beat. He was hungry. He was naked. He goes through all this long list, and at the end of all this long list of challenges... ...and, by the way, we could say that everyone has challenges. I'm not saying the pastors are the only ones. No, they have the same kind of challenges that you have. They have cars that break down, and they have marital difficulty, and they have kids that don't obey, and they have, you know, all of these things... But then Paul puts in this one sentence, and he says, Besides everything else, verse 28, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. It's a self-imposed pressure. It's a part of the calling. It's an occupational hazard, if you will. And sometimes we don't realize that pastors carry the weight of the church. When the attendance is down, when the finances are down, when there's a crisis, when there's an illness, we all rally. Churches rally and, and we come, but the pastor seems to carry that weight. So what, what's that all about? Well, I believe that it can be used by the enemy to wear the pastor down in this issue of spiritual warfare. Personally, I don't want to hear another story about pastoral failure, about a pastor blowing out or burning out. And yet Thursday, I received an email about a key leader in our movement who has to step down because of some very serious accusations. His family's in turmoil. His church is in turmoil. He's a regional leader. The region is in turmoil. What can we do? What are some of the answers? Well, here's some some things that um, I don't know what you can do other than just to encourage your pastor to lean into soul care. I have been deeply appreciative of the emphasis on personal soul care from our senior leadership. Phil Strout, when he came into being the national director, leaned into this issue of asking our pastors how is your soul not how's your church not how's the attendance not how's the the offering how is your soul and i've appreciated that and that was something that was being built on something already implemented by the f- previous director bert wagner because over 10 years ago they started what's called pastor sabbath retreats chris miller has been very involved in helping pastors make it for the long haul. Rose Swetman, our regional overseer, is currently involved in a Lilly grant with some of our leaders on the issue of resilience and leadership. This is a real issue. Your pastor has made it over a long period of time. But you have young pastors coming up. And those two things. The first thing is to lean into soul care. But in order to do that, some of our pastors, so I'm speaking generally now, but some of our pastors really need to conquer the fear of vulnerability. I grew up early in my ministry in the milieu that the man of God always is on top. My first mentor in ministry was one of these uh, faith preachers, and you could... Uh, You you couldn't tell if he had a dollar or a thousand dollars in his pocket, and both could be true. But he would always appear as if he had a thousand dollars in his pocket. He always on top, always in charge, never needing. And sometimes leaders can take on that persona and fail to be vulnerable and embrace the power of, of confession. Those are two things that you could do toward helping your pastors to pray for them on that issue but they have to do that pastor your pastors have to do that so what can we do what can we do to help our pastor successfully walk out their calling to lead the flock of God into fruitfulness and in ministry? Well, one author who was actually familiar with both of these issues, the issue of prayer and the issue of local churches, this is what he had to say. I don't know. Are you following me here? Um, what, partner with him in prayer. But uh, there's a quote there. The reason I'm writing this book is that I'm personally convinced the following statement. The most underutilized source of spiritual power in our churches today is intercession for Christian leaders. So let's circle back to our text today and and wrap this up. You could look at this text in two different perspectives. I I just want to point out the fact that Joshua was actually the general and he was credited with the victory. In the valley of Rephidim against the Amalekites. But the fact is, Moses was interceding for him on a whole different plane, physically elevated. But speaking of the spiritual warfare that happens, leaders who are often on the front lines of leadership and activism must have the support of people who are fighting the real battle behind the battle. Paul says we don't struggle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness in heavenly places. And so there's that level of intercession that's happening. But Moses is the key leader of the whole people of God, and we can get some insight as to why our pastors need prayer in a special way. And the first is that they come under attack. Moses and the whole people came under attack. The fact is that Moses was the one charged with giving oversight to the people of God and therefore giving insight and inspiration to them. But as we get into the story, even the great man of God, even this man who speaks to God face-to-face as a friend speaks to a friend, was human and weak. He was weak in his humanity, but finally, he saw victory for the people of God through the support of partners in intercession, and we'll see that here. It's pretty obvious, right, these these points from this passage we just looked at, Um, and but, but I, I want to give you a couple of nuggets. I think they're nuggets. If you go back to the beginning of the chapter, they had no water. And what was the natural tendency? Well, it seems like the natural tendency is to blame the leader whenever things are become challenging or they go wrong or they don't work out the way that we think they do. Here's something to keep in mind. It's not always the leader's fault. You could have said amen. (laughs) Come on. It's not always the leader's fault. But more importantly, as followers of Jesus, we shouldn't be following our natural tendencies. We should be leaning into the spirit. We should be sowing to the spirit and not sowing to the flesh. Our response should be spiritual and not natural. And it would be much better for us when we face difficulties in our personal life, but especially as it relates to the corporate life in the church, when we come up against the wall and we face a difficulty, it would be much better for us to stop and say, God, what are you up to? I was listening to a preacher, and uh, uh, this is profound. I've been saying it over and over in my mind in different situations. But on the day of Pentecost, the people's response to Peter and the other apostles a probably good response to us because they said, what does this mean? And then they said, what must we do? Instead of asking why or instead of pointing the, the finger of blame, it's good for us to stop and say, what does this mean? What is this challenge? What is this difficulty? What does this lack of water really mean? And what must we do? This could have been an opportunity for the people of God to grow in their trust of His provision. After all, the desert was meant to be schooling for a different way to live. God had miraculously delivered them out of Egypt, and now He was gradually delivering them from Egypt out of them. It speaks to the miracle of salvation moment in a moment. A miracle happens, but then it's the gradual, slow work of sanctification. And so we need discernment. Is this just human error? Is this a demonic attack to debilitate and discourage? Or is this simply circumstance that God wants me to grow through in my faith and obedience? So th- th- that's important for us to look at. But here's something else that's interesting. And I don't know that this has happened in your church recently, and I pray that it hasn't. But I want you to note that the enemy attacks immediately on the heels of the people of God, losing their focus and entering into grumbling and complaining. It was at Rephidim that they didn't have water. They grumbled. They complained. They got all grousing about that. And then in verse 8, it says the Amalekites attacked them at Rephidim. And I'll tell you, when we get our eyes off of the focus that God has given us, when the people of God are focused on His purposes, on His plan, on His intention, it really leaves little room for personal grievances. And it often closes the door to spiritual attack. My father-in-law, I told you, he was a pastor and an evangelist. And one of the things that he would say when he went into churches was, You have to get your focus on the things of God, the purpose of God, the kingdom of God. Get your focus on people who need to be here instead of the color of the carpet or whether you want flavored coffee or not. And so that's just a, that's extra. I won't charge you for that. But make no mistake. Make no mistake your pastor will come under attack. And whether the circumstances of it will be shared with you publicly or not, you can be sure that your pastors, I say I'm saying pastor, but I'm saying pastors, Tucker and Zoe, because of the, the principle that Jesus laid down regarding him own, his own self, When he said, this very night you will fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Do we really need to talk about the collateral damage caused when Christian leaders blow out or burn out? I'm still, I'm dealing with issues of damage and hurt from fallen leaders six, seven years after the fact. That leads us to the second point, that our pastors are called to give oversight and inspiration. This is not a burden, to be called to be an example. And we could talk about this more, but Moses purposely positioned himself where he could oversee the battle, where he could see what was going on, but also so that the army could see him, so that they could see his example, his leadership. And someone said this a long time ago, and it it really landed with me. Because honestly, pastors, leaders are not always the smartest, fastest, the best. But when they are called, they are often given insight because they've been given oversight. The person with oversight often gains insight. That's a whole other teaching. But here's, here's really the core of the lesson today from the passage. Leaders are human and they're subject to weakness. And they need partners in ministry. Even this great anointed man of God, Moses, became tired. He needed support of others. Is there any other picture in all of Scripture that is more beautiful than this of the power of team ministry? Moses was called. He was the leader. God ordained that. But he brought along Aaron, and he brought along her, and they came alongside him. And there's no better picture that I can see of those coming alongside the man or woman of God, called to lead, lifting up their weary hands, and therefore sharing in the victory. And that's the last point. They shared in victory. Moses allowed them to help, and they helped. Now, I don't know about you, but try this a little bit later today. Try to keep your hands up as long as he did, because they started battle in the morning, and they didn't end until sunset. I don't think I could do it. Do you think you could do it? No, we need helpers to come along. So I feel a little bit like Jesus right now. Because I have much more to say, but you cannot bear it. Hey, you're with me. You're with me. So here's my challenge. I don't know if the worship team wants to come up. Um, I know that we're bumping up against time. Um, but here's my challenge. If you want to see this local church move into a season of vitality and effectiveness, if you want this to be a place where transformation by the spirit happens, where people are encountering Jesus, where they're being equipped to follow him and to minister with him, partner with your pastors by committing to pray for them. Partner with them regularly, consistently, intently, seriously. Pray for your pastor. You say, well, I, how do I do that? Let me, let me just say this, because I know there's one or two people right now that you are, you've got this. Your arms aren't crossed literally, but they are figuratively, and you kind of have a whole hum attitude to the call to prayer. Would you resist that? Would you fight that? Would you commit to praying for your pastors? He said, well, James, yes, but how? Yes, but how? Well, I'm glad you asked. I have a paper here, two-sided. Pastors need prayer, too. Here are ways that you could pray for your pastor. I'll tell you right now, I'm sorry that I don't have enough time. Maybe next week I'll start with this, how important this was to me in Hermiston at Oasis Vineyard. I would love for people to pray for me as a spiritual leader, as a Christian leader from this list. Now, this is the detailed list, and this is the cheat sheet. So you can put this in your Bible or wherever you have your devotions. Put it somewhere you can see it, and it's just kind of the bullet points, and this is the fleshing out of the bullet points. But I want to pray and ask... um, is it Joy? Liz. Maybe Joy, maybe Joy was supposed to, Liz, Joy. Okay. Like I said, we're, we're going to invite ministry people to come and pray for you if you have a need. So if you're part of the prayer team and you just want to position yourself, if anyone needs prayer. But I'm, I'm talking to the rest of you. And here's my challenge, not only to make the commitment, but to tell somebody about it. You can tell me. I want to give you my email. If you have complaints, it's james at (laughs) yougottabekidding.com. If you uh, you want to enlist in this prayer army, it's james.lafo at gmail. I'm serious about giving 15 minutes 15 minutes a week for this coming year to pray for your pastor. Maybe it's on Saturday night or Sunday morning preparing for the worship services. Maybe it's on Monday morning when pastors typically are hit with warfare. Maybe it's five minutes, three times a day. It doesn't matter, but I I really want you to commit to investing in your church by investing in praying for your pastor's. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like to sow into what God is doing through Cascade Vineyard, we always welcome your prayers for our church body, our communities, and our leadership. If you'd like to contribute financially, please visit cascadevineyard.org/give.